welcome to Myth Matters, storytelling and conversation about mythology and why myth matters to your life today. I'm your host and personal mythologist, Dr. Katherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Today, I want to talk some more about Dionysus, about the energies and experiences personified by this ancient god whom Walter Otto aptly named the Epiphany God. Mainstream Western culture has been uneasy with what Dionysus represents for thousands of years, alternately repressing and denying it and relegating this Lord of Souls to the periphery. But there's no escape from Dionysus because he is the energy of life itself. Vulnerable, beautiful, profligate, and savage. Life in the body and the mystical meaning of mortality. In the last podcast, I said that Dionysus was called the loosener, or lysis in Greek, the loosener of limbs and of minds, the one who loosened your grip on fantasies of certainty or egoic self-importance, who loosened your grip on daily reality and perhaps on sanity. The loosener refers to experiences of dissolution of self and dismemberment of the body. And both of these are part of the history of the God, and his rites continued to inspire them literally and metaphorically for hundreds of years. Now, the Greek word lysis, lysos, which comes from lysis, means setting free or unraveling. And I want to pick up this thread to reflect a bit more on the nature of Dionysian loosening and epiphanies by spending some time with the myth of Ariadne, the god's wife and intimate. Who was Ariadne (laughs) to be partner to this god? Well, Ariadne, like Dionysus, is likely a much older deity, older than the Olympians, and one with much greater significance than her place in Greek mythology suggests. If it weren't for patriarchy, in other words, we might be asking the question in reverse, i.e., who is Dionysus (laughs) to be partner to this goddess? Ariadne's name, like Dionysus's, is not Greek, and it presents a bit of an etymological puzzle, and so scholars suggest that her cult, like his, migrated from the Near East and was incorporated then into the culture of the Greeks. The Ariadne that we know and the one that appears in the story that I'm going to tell you maybe, probably is, in my mind, a later, tamer version of the great mother goddess Cybele, the female face of the great round that we call life and death, 
birth, and rebirth, and death and birth again. That is the divine spark eminent in the material world. Ariadne, then, is the yin to the yang of the god Dionysus. These ideas, the yin and the yang, Ariadne and Dionysus, define and contain each other as the ancient black and white symbol suggests. Together, these energies comprise the whole, a truth that's also found in that old symbol, which is in the form of a circle. I see Dionysus and Ariadne as two faces of the central paradox of our mortal existence, namely that each thing, whether idea, quality, or experience, is in some deep way its own opposite. That we live in the contradictions (laughs) is the mystical message found in our mythologies. And this pair, Ariadne, the mistress of the labyrinth, and Dionysus, the great loosener, together personify the journey and the awareness. So let me tell you the myth of Ariadne, and we'll see where that takes us. I invite you to relax and listen, and let the story take you where you need to go. If a detail or moment in the story catches your attention, let that be significant. Make a mental note and allow yourself the space and time to reflect on it later to see what it opens up. The Myth of Ariadne Ariadne was the daughter of King Minos, the powerful king of Crete, and Queen Pasiphae daughter of Helios, the son. Her story begins, as is commonly the case, with decisions made by her parents and the destiny they courted. Her story, like that of many Greek heroines, begins with the actions of men. Her father Minos was one of several princes, and as a young man, he competed with his brothers for the kingship of Crete. He won the confidence of the people and so took the throne with the aid of the god Poseidon. Poseidon, who was the mighty god of the sea, was especially important to an island kingdom like Crete. And Minos told the people that he was so close to the god and enjoyed such favor that Poseidon would answer his every prayer. So, having a king that's got Poseidon in his pocket obviously would be very useful. Minos prayed to Poseidon, and he promised him all manner of honor and worship if he would send a sign of support to convince the people that Minos was, in fact, near to his heart. Poseidon sent a magnificent white bull up out of the sea on the condition that Minos would make a very lavish public sacrifice of the animal and thus return it to him. The people of Crete were duly impressed when Minos 
summoned this white bull up out of the sea, and he was named king. But then Minos didn't want to return the white bull. It was such a fine animal, and he thought that he could trick Poseidon by sacrificing a member of his own herd instead. You likely see the error here. (laughs) Poseidon was not fooled, and he took revenge on Minos. He cursed Queen Pasiphae with an unnatural love for the bull. She was obsessed to the point of madness. Now, Minos had a genius in his employ, a man named Diatelus. And Diatelus was a very clever man, an artist, architect, and inventor of many devices. When there was a problem at court, he came up with a solution. He constructed a wooden cow for the queen and had it delivered to the meadow where the great white bull was pastured. Pasiphae was inside. She mated with the bull and subsequently gave birth to a child with a human body and a bull head. A monster. She named him Asterion, which means little star, but he was better known as the Minotaur, a being with great strength who developed an insatiable appetite for human flesh. This Minotaur was Ariadne's half-brother. Now, Diatelus was called upon to solve the problem of how to imprison the Minotaur as neither Pasiphae nor Minos would kill it. And Diatelus built a labyrinth to house this monster. What happened to the great white bull, you wonder? This bull was known as the Cretan bull, and it rampaged around the island of Crete until Heracles was commanded to capture it as one of his 12 labors. Heracles took it to the mainland, where it continued to trouble people. During this time, Ariadne's brother sailed to Athens to compete in the local games. Adrogius was an excellent athlete, and when he arrived in Athens, he decided to kill the bull and make a hero's name for himself. Alas, he was killed. When his father, King Minos, heard the news, he was a bit suspicious about the circumstances, or perhaps he simply seized upon an excuse to go to war. These things happen, right? In any event, he sailed off to attack Athens. The gods had a grudge or two against Athens, and Minos was a son of Zeus, so the war did not go well for the Athenians. In the end, they negotiated a truce with Minos. He required them to pay him a tribute of seven young men and seven young women every year. And these he fed to the flesh-hungry Minotaur. When the Athenians learned of the fate of their young people, they despaired. But what choice did they have? Then Theseus, a beloved prince who was the favorite of King Aegeus, who was the king of Athens, 
volunteered to be one of the seven young men. I will kill the monster father, he said, and free our people from this grievous obligation. The king argued, but he acquiesced in the end. After all, Theseus had killed the Cretan bull after many others had failed. And what other choice did they have? There weren't a lot of volunteers to join that crew. So Theseus sailed with the other young men and women to the Isle of Crete and the Minotaur that year. Ariadne saw the ship and watched the young Athenians disembark. The hero Theseus stood out from the rest of them, tall and fair and bold, and she immediately fell in love with him. To betray her father was a very heavy crime, and yet she could not bear to see Theseus led away to the labyrinth, never to return. And her association with her father's crimes and the Minotaur (laughs) was a bit heavy, too. She stole away in secret to meet the prince and pledged to help him kill the Minotaur. And then she went to Diadolus, and between them, they made a plan. Ariadne gave Theseus a skein of thread. Unwind this thread as you walk the dark corridor, she told him. You may kill the Minotaur, but that is only half the battle. Then you must find your way out. Follow the thread back to the sunlight. Theseus took this advice and the thread, and he pledged his love to Ariadne. Fair princess, he said, you are wise as well as beautiful. When your father discovers what we have done, you won't be safe from his wrath. Come away with me and be my wife. And so the lovers parted. Theseus went first into the gloom of the labyrinth and bid the others to stay close to the entrance. He unwound the thread, killed the minotaur, and followed it back again, just as planned. The young Athenians ran for their ship, bringing the princess Ariadne with them. She left her family and her home to begin a new life. She would be in exile, but she had Theseus. By the time the word got to King Minos, their ships had already disappeared from view. Now, most agree on the details of this story, as I've told it thus far. But what happened next is a bit unclear. For some reason, perhaps for fresh water or a rest, the ship stopped at the island called Naxos, and the group remained there overnight. In the morning, Ariadne awoke with the sun in her eyes. She was alone. (laughs) The beach was deserted, and the ship was gone, carrying Theseus and the others away. He left her, abandoned her, on a lonely little island. Some say that Theseus had a change of heart. Some say that he was never true. Some say that the god Dionysus compelled him with his deep magic to leave the princess behind. 
Who knows the truth? Ariadne was beside herself with grief. One day, maybe several days, passed in despair and tears. And then a small boat appeared, gliding over the water so smoothly that it seemed to barely touch the waves. It was Dionysus, wearing a panther skin over his shoulder and a smile on his lips. Dionysus came to Naxos for Ariadne, and she became his wife on Mount Olympus. Ariadne, who as a young girl led the Cretan dancers around their polished floors, became the intimate companion of the Lord of the Dance, of the Vine, of Souls. To Ariadne, mistress of the labyrinth, Dionysus pledged his heart, and she gave hers to him. image of the labyrinth is a good portal into understanding the mystery and experience of this Ariadne-Dionysus pairing. The form of the spiral and the meander appears in seashells, spiderwebs, and galaxies, and many other natural forms. It's evidence of connections beyond our comprehension. People and cultures around the world have equated this image with the links between the visible and the invisible worlds. The labyrinth itself is a map and the journey. A map and a journey. The image of a passage through life to death from this material plane to the mystery beyond. This is the truth of the body for all mortal beings, and it's a journey in consciousness. I'm reminded that Joseph Campbell said that the primary impetus to myth, the motivation or catalyst for our myth-making, is our consciousness of death and the challenge that that poses. Our myths, then, are meant to assist us, and cults like that of Dionysus and Ariadne, and there were many variations on these forms under all kinds of names connected with the names of other deities, was meant to provide some relief or release or freedom from that conscious awareness of death from that ending that could also be the opening into great mysteries. The ancient Romans called Dionysus Liber Pata, the father who frees, and Ariadne Libera, or Prosperina. And like the Greek Persephone, she was associated with the underworld. What is this freedom that they would offer? Was it freedom from the fear of death? The labyrinth is a circuitous path to an invisible center. A circuitous path to an invisible center. I think if you let that image rest in your psyche, you will intuit a great deal from it. 
And the labyrinth is a paradox. It's, it, it presents a series of paradoxes. It is both circular in form and linear. There are only two directions to move. <laughs> if you've ever walked a labyrinth, you know, in or out. The path then is defined and circumscribed, and yet it is a route to liberation. The traveler gropes his or her or their way through the unknown and perhaps through the dark for clarity. Dionysus and Ariadne, as the yin-yang of life force, reveal unity in contradictions, wholeness through dissolution, life in the underworld, reason in the irrational, peace in the frenzy, and mental power in the physicality of the body. They suggest to us that to fully live, you must embrace the contradictions. And they suggest that this requires recognition of the other, of the others, because the other is a portal into the mystery. The others around us, human and non-human, no matter how familiar, are also always the unknown and the unknowable, aren't they? Containing depths that we can't plumb, a logic that we can't understand, meanings that we can't decipher. And all of this, unknown and unknowing, might be unbearable, but for the fact that this same mystery is in each of us, in you. The teeming, surging energy of the living world and the relationships and multitude of connections between all of those beings and pieces, the seen and the unseen, is a move away from the empty loneliness of the Titanic. Now, I've been talking about the Titanic in the last few episodes. And so I want to take a minute to think about how the denial of Ariadne and Dionysus, how keeping them on the periphery, contributes to the Titanic propensity in human nature and in our culture. So just a brief recap on what is the Titanic We're talking about that thing in us that denies our limitations, that longs for the huge, for the overwhelming, for the excessive, for the boundless, that attempts to do and be beyond our human scale. And this is possible in a world of abstractions and generalizations in the empty space of a titanic imagination, which is empty of individuals, of the unique particulars and the specific details of the world. And it is therefore then devoid of mystery, my friends, for that mystery is found in the others, the mystery and the value. I wonder if the tension between the Titanic and this Dionysus-Ariadne pair weaves through Ariadne's myth in the hubris of Minos, 
who lays claim to the power of the gods and tries to trick Poseidon, for example. And I wonder about the monster, that little star, renamed the Minotaur. Minotaur. His father's machine, then, for terror and death, wandering alone in the dark maze of labyrinth that is home and trap. Ariadne's thread is a surprising device to guarantee the success of a hero, isn't it? (laughs) You know, the ancient Greek word for a skein of thread is clue, spelled C-L-E-W. And this is the root for the word clue, C-L-U-E, clue as in the hints and signs that you follow to a discovery. And the evolution of meaning in this word is a reference to the myth of Ariadne's thread. The thread is an old and powerful metaphor for the binding element of a story and the link between, the essential guide. In the Upanishads, for example, the sutra, or thread, links this world to the other and the one to all beings. When I first heard Ariadne's story years ago, I was going through a difficult time. I was walking in that labyrinth, and I suddenly had this sense that no matter how dark it might be, no matter how many twists and turns there might be, no matter how many unexpected and unpleasant surprises, (laughs) that actually maybe there was a thread that I was following. Maybe there was a purpose to what was happening there. Maybe some continuity in my life even that had brought me into that maze and would move me back out again. I further imagined that there was someone or something else at the other end of that thread. Honestly, I don't think it's in the story as it's been recorded, and yet I always imagine Ariadne on the other end holding that thread. And that gave me comfort, too. So I thought, okay, I'm not alone in this process. (laughs) And there is a presence in my life. I think of this as an aspect of self, the deep self, or perhaps my daemon, as James Hillman and the ancient Greeks and Romans would say that understands my destiny, that is that thread. Now, at this stage in my life, the labyrinth is ever-present as an image for the journey into soul and the realities of life and mortality. It takes more than conventional reason and logic to comprehend this, don't you know? (laughs) So I have a poem or two for you before I close But first, I want to give a big welcome to the new subscribers. Gil, Tammy, Mark, Gloria, Lori, Al, Liana, Ilana, Ian, and Scott. Welcome and thank you for subscribing for email announcements about the podcast and my other programs. If you're new to Myth Matters, I invite you to head over to the Mythic Mojo website where you will find information about Myth Matters, a variety of ways to subscribe to the podcast, 
and also information about the other work that I do with people to use stories to gain insight into life. Also, a heartfelt shout out to the patrons and supporters of this podcast whose financial contributions keep it all going. In particular, thank you to Myth Matter patrons KD, Lydia, and Trish, and to Robert, Rosabelle, and Joan for your recent contributions in my tip jar. Thank you. (laughs) If you're finding something of value in the podcast, I invite you to join me on Patreon too, or perhaps drop a few bucks in the tip jar on my Mythic Mojo website. Now, for two poems that I hope will amplify this story for you, in honor of the mystery that permeates all and each of us. This first one is titled, Ariadne Thanks Theseus for Abandoning Her, by Iona Veronica Warwick. And this is from the anthology Orpheus and Company, edited by Deborah DiNicola. I hear you married my sister, the one famous for her blue eyes. You think you can control her. No one is harder to control than a woman who spends her life before the closed door of mirrors. She fingers her necklaces, combs her endless hair, and gets what she wants, a man, a child. We with more mind are in love with the shadows everything casts, the watery color of doubt. I was the path home that unwound behind you. I held you by the thread of breath, hollowed out slim foothold. Who could endure such love? Your ship growing smaller against the flawless blue, the tapering black sail tried to teach me the essential stone. But I only cried. I cried until star-blind sleep. I cried bruised by the sun. Then, among the voices of silence, I heard an overlay of sound preparing for its meaning. If you hadn't left me, I'd never hear talking and laughing, serving heated wine. If the horizon hadn't swallowed you, I'd believe in it still. Let it hold me like a wall. Deceiver, I thank you. Betrayer, I bless you. You can't imagine the labyrinths I travel. I am entering into such music, you seem no longer a giant. Time pairs you down to a roadside post, a place I had to pass. If the horizon hadn't swallowed you, I'd believe in it still. And now, another one from this same collection, titled Awaiting Dionysus, by Deborah DiNicola. Ariadne awoke as the sun spilled over the east wing of the island. She stretched and reached for him in the roomy bed. But Theseus had left her the ball of thread tied to her heart like a block of ice. Stone in her throat, swollen moon that refuses to fade with sunrise, she swallows it over and over. She walks the beach. Her face in the shell-shaped mirror is whiter and thinner, more blemished and freckled, older than she remembered. 
What did he dread in her deep-set eyes? The bleached waste of the ocean's bottom? Debt of treachery to her father and beast of a brother? Or was it the reckless liquor of her heights? The mind that could slice through the labyrinth breathing passion with manic foresight? What did he run from? What claws in her nest of privates? Was it the mire of her odor after love? Did he tire of her inattentive sighs, evenings, her Chopin, the nocturne in E-flat, which always moved her, to pour cognac and stare through the picture window into the black sky? Gravity of stars, drawing her to her own thoughts. Was it the fact that she had thoughts? Was it the sway and stemming of those thoughts, like the waves' repetitions, that washed him away? Or was he like her brother, a bull at heart, snorting for new conquests, larger breasts, firmer ass, tighter dress? What did he want? Never mind. Never mind. She stirs tea, chops an onion, arranges beach glass in the ashtray to catch what's left of morning light. Frozen moon, frozen chest, frozen heart, only a god of ecstasy with a killer's rod could release, clasping and pumping the splashy yeast of the red aorta, her aftershocks like lightning in his bare hands. And that is it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth Matters. Thank you so much for listening. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. And until next time, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.